Byers, and this is Successful Associations Today. My guest is Ariana Rahak, CEO of Matchbox Virtual Media. And I've been dying to talk to her because I'm tired of hearing the word hybrid without really thinking this through. And she and her team coined Tribrid, which I love. So what's the easiest way to explain what this is? So uh, the Tribrid, and I have to give credit, Chris, if you're listening, thank you for coming up with this term. He actually had mentioned, he he had used this term uh, in a meeting and completely forgotten uh, what he even meant by it. We had kind of taken uh, the concept and gone, that's brilliant, and, and ran with it, and now it, it um, exists out in the world. So thanks, Chris. But uh, Tribrid, you know, it, the way that we've been using it, it's um, almost like a, a conceptualization. If you look at your total number of experiences that you're seeking to offer, and um, uh, when I say experiences, you know, I mean uh, session types, uh, a networking event uh, at a face-to-face conference would be a, a type of experience. So very broadly, w- when you look at your total number of experiences that you're wanting to offer in the setting of uh, an event that's meant to take place both in person and um virtually, you can almost think about dividing those experiences up into three categories. Uh, The first category are experiences designed exclusively for the face-to-face community. So things like the uh, reception at the hotel bar. Um, So that's number one. Number two would be the experiences exclusively for the virtual community. And then the third category um, is almost like a bridge. So it's experiences that are very strategically built so that both sides are able to participate and that it's actually serving to build community among uh, the entire um, set of your attendees. This is what I think is so important because when we talk about hybrid, we are assuming that the needs of each audience are the same, and that is absolutely not true. And for those leading sessions, they have to be flexible enough and dialed in enough if it is a joint audience to be able to meet the needs of two audiences. And sometimes our presenters and speakers can't or don't have enough experience to do it comfortably. And so I think we really, really have to be, instead of just throwing this word around, I think we really have to define what we mean and what it's gonna look like. So how are you using this concept of three and and helping them design events? Sure, so um, there were a couple of Eurekas along the way that I think are uh, are interesting to think about. The first Eureka is that the uh, the real estate that you're looking at for your event isn't necessarily just uh, the moment in time where everybody is synchronous together, um, whether that be face-to-face or virtual. And so if you're looking pre-event or post-event, one of the interesting realizations is that every attendee is a, vir- is a, um, a virtual attendee at that time. So uh, if, if you think about the that third category uh, within the tribrid is, you know, could you, for instance, uh, strategically put on a few meet and greet events uh, in advance of your face to face 
so that um, everyone gets a chance to be together. But then also it's an opportunity for some of those face-to-face folks to learn about others who are going to be attending uh, the conference. So even before COVID hit, uh, we were getting really, really excited about the notion of blending meaningful face-to-face and virtual experiences. And we weren't always just thinking about it as uh, simultaneous. We were seeing each as an opportunity to strengthen the other side. So uh, the meet and greet in advance is a really good example. The other uh, major opportunity that we were starting to get excited about was using virtual um, post uh, face-to-face. So let's say, uh, you know, one one example that came to mind, it was a face-to-face event where at the very end, there were these roundtable discussions. And so Uh, we asked everyone, okay, what's your big lingering question after these discussions? And those were actually used to put together uh, content for a small virtual event that took place a couple months later. So this event was really interesting. About 50% of attendees had participated at the face-to-face and 50% were coming for the first time. And so you had, it was was a, you know, you had a, a reunion feeling, you know, there were people in the chat who were like, it's great to see you, Cindy. And then um, we were really excited actually to see how many of those virtual attendees uh, decided to attend the face-to-face the following year. But of course, COVID kind of ruined that study. They, they, They all went virtual. I like the idea of real estate and thinking about it in terms of real estate. There's the virtual real estate, there's the in-person real estate, but it doesn't all have to happen at the same time. And I think personally, I think this is one of the mistakes we made early on because we were just doing what we needed to do. And if you have a three-day meeting, it's not really realistic to think that you can put people in a virtual environment for three long days and expect a high level of engagement or participation, it makes more sense to spread it out. And then the reality is, is that the value of the event is is really ongoing. Instead of just three days, it can be three weeks, it can be multiple weeks. I've seen some groups that have started releasing modules each week or two a week until they get uh, to the, the big event, which in many cases was virtual or this year will be a small studio audience. So even the way that we're talking about events is changing. It's not just an audience anymore. It's a studio audience as we think about a broadcast uh, for those who are joining virtually. So I get excited about the possibilities, but there's cost and complexity that goes along with this. So how are you helping clients think that through and tackle those challenges? So I'll um, I'll say a few things about cost. Um, there are definitely so many factors that go in. It's it's hard to to kind of give blanket advice. But some some immediate things that come to mind. Um, I'm realizing more and more uh, with the virtual space that less is more when it comes to uh, the the content and the experience being offered. Is that um, it is going to be a much better experience if you look at really investing in the quality of fewer sessions um, than many sessions. And so, you know, as far as cost goes, that is, you know, one one area where I would consider um, budget wise is is really narrowing in perhaps on on what uh, works really well uh, virtually. So that that's one uh, one comment I would make in looking at the the tribrid of the three 
um, the, the three categories is, you know, looking at, at what uh, virtually, for instance, what works really well virtually. So panel conversations, for instance, would be an, an excellent example. Those tend to perform very well virtually. There's actually a format virtually um, of the, the panel conversation, the way that all the speakers are, are looking at each other as they're interacting. And it's almost podcast style. That's something that actually would be very hard to achieve face to face and in the same kind of way. So that would be an example of really leaning into what the virtual does well. Um, the other thing I would say is that a lot of people are looking at recording their sessions face-to-face and um, then editing them and turning them into virtual content. But that's actually, there are a lot of costs associated with doing it this way. And um, uh, this, this, will, this will depend significantly on the style of how they're recorded. But um, we find that actually very often those recordings give a, a feeling of FOMO when you're watching them um, after the fact. You know, the, the live studio audience um, format is a little bit different because it's, it's designed, um, uh, you know, strategically for, to be uh, recorded for viewing after. But, you know, the notion of the camera in the back of the room, for instance, um, it's hard to see the slides. These speakers aren't looking directly at you. So we're actually recommending um, recording the sessions, asking speakers in some cases to record their, their uh, sessions completely separately from their, their face-to-face. And, and our experience is that a lot of the speakers are quite happy to do that because they're increasing their, their audience and participation. So you've given some great examples of the uh, innovative ideas and uh, things to be thinking about. Uh, can you just think of uh, maybe one example that we haven't talked about yet that you thought was really innovative and worth noting? Sure. Um, I, I guess this is a, a broader category, but one thing uh, to kind of think about is there is an opportunity in leveraging virtual tools in the face-to-face environment that kind of fits in that third category. So, you know, things like um, polling where both sides are participating in the polls, things like, um, you know, putting a I'm losing the word uh, projection on the wall of the chat that's occurring simultaneously. Um, there are um, some really interesting and and the other uh, the other thing that we've been recommending are uh, animators in the virtual sessions that have participated in the face to face. So they are um, you know having a, a presence and kind of bringing a new perspective on onto the other side and and you know sometimes even if it's simultaneous being on site uh, in doing that. So um, as far as those virtual tools go, there are some really interesting ones out there. Uh, one, one example I'll give that we use that we love is called uh, Pickles, P-I-C-C-L-E-S. It's a collaborative uh, drawing tool. So there's a prompt and um, you, can, um, you can literally draw uh, in response to it. And then the whole thing populates almost like a mural um, right in front of your eyes. So there's some really cool digital tools that, that really help create that sense of community with the larger set because the virtual people can be participating in that just as well as the face-to-face. So I think what's exciting about all this to me is that, you know, the, the pandemic forced us to do some things that we probably should have been thinking about and proactively doing anyways. So it's, 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 I think it's been hard in that respect. There's a lot of stress that comes with being on deadline and not uh, being able to do it at your own time frame, but it's also providing a tailwind. And this, this necessity that has come, I think has given people permission 
And it's, it's put us in a more proactive now, a year in, a more proactive, how can we do this and do it well? But I know that the pull to go back to the way things were is strong. And yet many associations actually reached more people than they ever have before. You know, part of it was people were looking for answers. So who knows if it's going to be the same going forward. But what are you advising organizations to think about so that they don't go back and that they still are moving forward? So, um, you know, looking at, uh, so again, the, the tribrate example of the, um, uh, the virtual, the virtual only sessions, you know, there are some things that, that you're able to do virtually that you're not able to do in, in any other way that are really powerful. And, you know, there, there are some examples of event types or session types that have gone online. And I can tell you very authentically, I don't think should stay online award shows, for instance, let's come together to celebrate. <laughs> but uh, there, there are uh, some really interesting opportunities that have emerged virtually in terms of group collaboration in terms of um, meaningful uh, panel conversations in terms of just-in-time content that emerges. You know, really looking at what's worked well um, is something that I really, really recommend leaning into because it's just everybody's toolbox has just expanded significantly. Um, uh, Previous to COVID, we actually uh, were even avoiding making the direct comparison of of face-to-face conferences and virtual because we really felt that in in many cases, the value proposition of virtual events are um, are different and um, serve different needs. So, for example... When I look at virtual networking, you know, one of the big eurekas recently about it is that um, if, if facilitated properly, virtual networking is a really good way of identifying others that you might be interested in, in connecting with. And then, um, and very often those connections are actually happening in a decentralized way. You know, I just had a, a moment uh, yesterday, for example, where I was speaking in a session that had other speakers and I made a joke on um, during my session and he wrote to me a, a direct message in the chat and we, we bonded over that moment. And then I added him on LinkedIn and we started a conversation. So we had been in that discussion because we had a commonality and then that was that moment of connection. Um, and so, you know, by contrast at a face-to-face conference, I've had the experience where, you know, I've sat down at a table and the people around me weren't, um, were interesting, but not, I, I didn't connect with and, but I was there at that table. Um, I've also, my business partner, I met him at a conference, you know, we dropped everything when we, when we met because we realized we had so much in common and, um, uh, and clearly we did because we started a business together. So face-to-face, um, uh, networking kind of has very different, um, uh, possibilities and shortcomings, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that, that is my really, really long winded response is, you know, <laughs> let's, let's lead into what virtual does well. And, and, you know, let's, let's, uh, do awards in person. <laughs> and uh, trade shows are the other thing that uh, yes. are, are extremely, extremely, extremely difficult to do well. And I haven't heard anybody say, yeah, we did it virtually and it was amazing. In fact, I've heard just the opposite. So you're absolutely right. There are some things that really belong, uh, in person rather than uh, virtually. But I think one of the takeaways, I think if we've got uh, CEOs, meeting planners, anybody that's listening to this and is responsible for meetings, one of the takeaways is 
going forward, we can try some small pilots. We can experiment. We can do some smaller virtual events to see how they're going to do and how they're going to land. We don't have to innovate everything all at one time necessarily like we did last year. And so I think going forward, I'm really encouraging. I just completed a uh, innovation scan. And one of the things we're encouraging people to do is take the 10% pledge. And that just says we're committed to innovating 10% of everything we're doing. So 10% of our agendas, 10% of our meetings, 10% of our publications, so that we get into this cycle of continuous innovation and challenging ourselves rather than getting comfortable and complacent, because we know complacency leads to irrelevance. And that's not where we need to be coming out of this. So last question, assuming that the pandemic subsides, what is your prediction for two years from now? Are virtual, is virtual going to be a flash in the pan or is it here to stay? So I'm going to answer your question. And then if it's okay, I have a question for you about, uh, about what you just shared, because that's very interesting, the, the 10% pledge. So I want to satisfy my own curiosity and, and hopefully others who are listening. But um, to, to answer your question about the prediction, um, I, so there's a, uh, uh, there was a study done a few years ago that um, uh, protein bars, there were protein bars given to two groups of people. And one group, they were told that the bars were healthy. And the other group, they were told that the bars were delicious. And at the end, they asked them to rate how full they were, you know, how satisfied, et cetera. And the ones that were eating the delicious bars um, reported themselves to be fuller and more satisfied with the bars. And so um, the reason I say that is because I've definitely seen very different mindsets around virtual where some are coming into it um, from a, a bit of a place of, of fear and, and um um, and, uh, and scarcity and, and the feelings around, uh, virtual is almost like it's the, the healthy choice right now. Like we have to do this and, um, you know, it will sure have benefits, but there, those benefits are, are in that healthy category, but others are, are seeing this as delicious, seeing this as an opportunity, seeing outcomes that are emerging out of this that were unexpected. Um, and so, um, my prediction is that those who are having delicious experiences with their virtual events will, will continue to do them. And my question for you, Mary, um, about the, the 10% pledge, I'm, I'm curious if there is a um, uh, framework or, or suggestion for how to decide what that 10% should be um, that people are experimenting in. There really isn't. And I, I chose 10% because I thought it was doable. I've been around associations for a long time and I'm dismayed quite honestly to see how often we just pull out last year's agenda. We change the dates, we change the city and it's pretty much the same schedule. So as I work with boards, I ask them, would you be willing to hold yourselves accountable for at least a 10% change? And that seems to be the manageable number. As far as what metrics around that. I've really left that to people for two reasons. One, uh, it, every association is different and where they're excelling is different, where they're challenged is different and their resources are different. So it may be easier for an association to 
change up 10% of a meeting and easier for another association really to focus on their publications. So my, my whole thing is let's just start, let's do it in a reasonable way and let's just start somewhere. The, the other recommendation that I have if, for anybody who's interested in taking that 10% pledge is really to sit down and uh, take out a blank piece of paper and ask themselves, where's the low-hanging fruit? That's always a good place to start. Where can we get a quick win? That's a good place to start. What's not working? That's a good place to start. And then the fourth category would be, where can we get a high return on investment. So maybe it's not a quick win, maybe it's not easy, but if we did it, it would have a, a return on investment for the organization. And so those are categories to potentially start in. Uh, but I like what you're thinking and you've got me thinking now about mm -hmm. uh, maybe building out this framework as we get more and more into it. Uh, so I'm gonna uh, kick that question back to you. I'm curious why you asked it and where your brain was going, because you know one of my favorite things about you is how innovative and curious you are. So it obviously sparked something. It did. Um, one of the reasons I, I really like it is because um, just as much as it has people thinking about what they could add, um, there's a, a, a connotation there that you're also then removing 10% of what you're doing because it's not add an additional 10%. Um, so I think that's really valuable to you know certain decisions made along the way. There was a reason why something was put in place, but maybe the environment has shifted. Maybe you know there's a perception of something having a high impact or high value. And in fact, um, it isn't necessarily doing what it, it used to be doing. And so I, I, uh, I think that uh, that discipline also will have value in removing things that actually are um, just, uh, are, you know, are, are costly to do at, at an opportunity cost. That's a great thought. Maybe we'll call it the 10% replacement pledge. <laughs> uh, great, great thought. I always love talking with you. Thank you for being here with me today. I'm Mary Byers, and this is Successful Associations Today. 